0: This week, the size and power of the asteroid that hit a Russian city in February.
1: That would be the equivalent of sort of a a mid-sized nuclear weapon, half a megaton uh, of TNT equivalent release.
0: And look away now, reduced eye contact in babies could indicate autism.
1: They
2: are the earliest signs of social disability that we have ever observed.
0: Plus, a scientist who studies the brain receives a diagnosis of Parkinson's. What happens when work and life collide? I want
3: to be a sort of living example, that you can be successful and be imperfect or disabled in some way.
0: This is The Nature Podcast for November the seventh, 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. It's not every day an asteroid smashes into the Earth, but on the rare occasions when it does, the impact can be devastating. The explosion from an asteroid that hit Russia in 1908 flattened over 2,000 square kilometres of forest. In February this year, another asteroid hit, this time over the city of Chelyabinsk, also in Russia. Windows shattered by the sonic boom injured hundreds of people. And there was another difference between the two impacts. In 1908, those trying to understand what had happened relied on analysing the aftermath of the explosion and anecdotal evidence from witnesses. This time round, home videos and security cameras captured key details of the event, giving scientists like Peter Brown from the University of Western Ontario much more data to analyze when it came to reconstructing the fireball's journey.
1: What was so extraordinary about this particular fireball was that it, it was so large. There was so much energy that the air wave, the blast wave from from the, the meteor, reached the ground and, and caused damage at the ground. And that's something we haven't seen in modern times.
0: The last time being, I suppose, when a similar fireball, I can't believe that's actually a scientific term, but it is, uh, hit Tunguska.
1: That's right. Yeah. The the last time something of this size uh, was documented and we've we've seen damage at the ground uh, was Tunguska. Although I should say Tunguska, which also hit in uh, Russia back in 1908, was actually quite a lot more energy, probably at least 10 times as much energy as uh, the impact over Chelyabinsk.
0: Give us a little bit more of of a 101 to fireballs then. You said already that they're quite rare.
1: Right, right. So any object that uh, enters our atmosphere, the the physical object itself, we typically call a meteoroid. The light, heat, sound phenomena of that object going through the atmosphere, we call a meteor. Really bright meteors, we call fireballs. And in cases, uh, very rare cases, like Chelyabinsk and and some others, we actually have another term. We actually call these airbursts, when the energy released is comparable to the energy released from a nuclear weapon. And Chelyabinsk is in that category
0: sounds like a pretty scary time to be in Chelyabinsk. Um, You've been looking at lots of YouTube footage filmed by people who were actually there and from CCTV footage and that sort of thing.
1: Right. What was so extraordinary about this event was not just that it was of such great magnitude, so much energy, but that it actually impacted in an urban area where almost everybody has these dash cams on their cars. And that provided us with a what I think is a completely unique scientific perspective on any uh, fireball event. We've never had a fireball where there's been hundreds of these videos that uh, were almost immediately posted to to YouTube. And so we've used that as sort of the basis for a lot of the analysis we've been able to do.
0: I've never really come across a dash cam. Are they popular in Russia?
1: (laughs) Yeah, the dash cams are are very popular in Russia. I I guess there are are issues with uh, insurance and uh, all sorts of safety issues in Russia. So a lot of people do put dash cams in their cars just so they can record what actually is happening as they're, as they're driving around. And as a result, a lot of them recorded this, uh, this airburst.
0: Now, two papers that you're involved with in this week's Nature, or going onto Nature's website, I should say, estimate various vital statistics and characteristics of this body and then of its airburst. What, what exactly were you looking at?
1: Well, across these uh, these two papers, uh, my colleagues in the Czech Republic, Yuri Bodovichka and, and Pavel Spurny in particular, took uh, a number of the very best dash cam videos and were able to get calibrations, having people go out and take images of the night sky from the same location the cameras were taken. From that, they were able to get a very precise trajectory and a very precise uh, speed. In terms of the energy, we looked at how uh, seismic waves were produced by the shock that hit the ground, Uh, We used some U.S. government sensor data that gave us a direct estimate of energy. And we also were able to use that U.S. government sensor data to help calibrate the the brightness of some of the dash cams. And then we we could estimate energy that way. So we even went so far as to look at uh, some windows that were blown in. We could follow the glass shards, figure out how fast the glass was moving. And that told us the strength of the shockwave. So uh, the cameras were a a treasure trove of information uh, in looking at this event.
0: And how about the energy that was released?
1: So we had four independent means of estimating the total energy, and they all gave us uh, roughly the same answer, and the answer is about half a megaton uh, of TNT-equivalent release. And to put that into context, that would be the equivalent of sort of a a mid-sized nuclear weapon.
0: And the amount of damage that corresponds to this, or corresponded to it at the time, is that what you might expect from a blast
1: of this magnitude? Well, interestingly enough, people have over the years developed lots of models to try to understand how airbursts would cause damage at the ground and they've used in fact empirical relations or relations that have been developed from nuclear weapons tests and it turns out those those weapons tests somewhat overestimated the amount of damage we actually saw at the ground relative to what the amount of energy that uh, that we were able to record uh, from Chelyabinsk. But we do have other models of, of how these air bursts and fireballs enter the atmosphere that are, are less related to what nuclear weapons uh, seem to do, and those did a better job of predicting. So another, another way of putting this is nuclear weapons aren't really a great analog for being able to tell us what these airbursts are like. We actually need, need new and enhanced models based on the results from, from our work.
0: Peter Brown there, who's at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. And there's a video version of this story featuring plenty of that dashcam footage and some awesome animations up on our YouTube site, youtube.com slash nature video channel. Find links to the two papers and a paper published in Science this week also on the Chelyabinsk airburst at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Coming up later in the show, an X-ray telescope and a pickled elephant. Someone turn that into a joke and send it to us, podcast at nature.com. Right now, though, that story on eye contact. Babies come into the world with an inclination towards looking at people's eyes. It's thought that this helps guide social behaviour later in life. One telltale clue to an autistic condition in young children is that they look at other people's eyes less. But actually diagnosing autistic spectrum conditions only happens later, when kids reach two or three years of age, where there are more obvious deficits in social behaviour. If such conditions could be picked up earlier, then perhaps there'd be more time to treat them. Warren Jones and Army Klin of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, were interested to see how very young infants who later go on to develop autism differ from those who don't. Jeff Marsh called Warren to hear how they got on.
2: Ever since the initial description of autism by Leo Kanner in 1943, deficits in eye contact have been a hallmark of autism spectrum disorders. And they are a prominent piece of diagnostic instruments in the diagnosis of young children with autism. And we really think about attention to eyes in typical development and in typically developing children as a fundamental mechanism of typical social adaptive action.
4: So at some point then, children with autism deviate from this normal path?
2: Children with autism look less at other people's eyes. Uh, When they do look at eyes, the eye contact tends to be atypical. But one of the things that was still unknown to us was really when those deficits begin, how they begin and what they look like in very early life. So you set about then
4: to work out just how early you could spot this deviation from the normal behaviour? You must have been studying some children who were and some who weren't going to develop autism. You can't have known at that point. Tell me about
2: the longitudinal study you set up. We enrolled children who were either at high risk for having an autism spectrum disorder or at low risk. We followed these children from birth. We diagnosed the children conventionally at age 2 and then confirmed again at age 3 years old. And then we were able to look back through their earliest data, starting at the first two months of life, to identify time points when their attention to key social signals in the world was different from their typically developing peers.
4: So tell us then, how did the infants that later went on to develop the condition differ from those that didn't?
2: Our expectation at the outset, based on this long history of reduced eye contact in autism, is that we thought that we would see reduced eye fixation from those first months of life. And instead, what we found was that early on in life, the levels of eye looking were actually present at levels that were within the normative range. But in contrast to typically developing infants, eye contact over time was already declining in infants who later were diagnosed with autism.
4: Well, it sounds like there are a couple of important results there. But first of all, you've hit on the earliest indicator of a social disability in infancy.
2: They are the earliest signs of social disability that we have ever observed. And so the next step, of course, is to replicate these results in a larger sample. But these results show us that it's at least possible to identify these early signs within the very first month of life
4: although some of these children went on to develop autism, they actually started off with normal behaviors, just like the kids that didn't. What are the implications there for treatment?
2: So in those first months of life, we see levels of eye-looking that are present within the normative range. And that suggests that there's some portion of eye contact very early in life that may be intact. And we don't know really to what extent it's intact, because at the same time that those levels are in the normative range, They're also already declining, but if those basic mechanisms of orienting to social information in the environment, if some of those are intact, it would give us an opportunity, if we can identify those signs early, to begin to intervene and build on those intact mechanisms.
4: And I suppose now that we have this narrow window when the behavior seems to start veering off course, presumably this is going to help you with future studies of the underlying biology.
2: Absolutely. That window gives us guidance for future studies of neuroimaging and gene expression. and We want to see the way that those things are changing alongside these behavioral measures that we've collected about how eye contact is changing over time.
4: So how do you actually go from taking this very interesting finding and turning it into a sort of robust diagnostic tool?
2: What's next is basically to replicate this in larger population-based samples. And it's really those studies that would tell us the exact levels of sensitivity and specificity. Ultimately, that's exactly where we'd like to go. This is the first step that really tells us that that's possible.
4: And finally then, new parents who are sort of hearing this finding and looking at their child, should they be worried if, if the child seems to be more interested in looking at a rattle than, than into
2: their eyes? No, absolutely not. Parents should know that the differences that we saw in this study aren't things that a parent or even a professional is going to be able to see with the naked eye. This required sophisticated technology, many measurements over time, and the truth is babies look in a lot of different places, and that's okay, that's how they're learning about the world.
0: Warren Jones there. Go to nature.com nature to read the full paper. Two more eye-related stories in the research highlights, read this week by Charlotte Stoddart.
5: Reindeer eyes change colour depending on the season to let more light through the retina. At the back of some mammals' eyes is a structure called the tapetum lucidum. It reflects light through the retina a second time to improve sight in dim light. Researchers based in London studied the tapetum lucidum in reindeer and found that it changed colour from golden in summer to deep blue in winter. The winter colour seems to scatter more light, so for reindeer at least, during the winter, deep blue is the new gold. Read more in the Proceedings of the Royal Society Bee. How do bees come in for a soft landing? Without stereo vision, they have to use other techniques to judge their distance from a target. It turns out that they measure how fast their landing zone is expanding in their field of vision. Researchers in Sweden studied honeybees as they landed on disks with a rotating spiral pattern. Optical illusions that slowed down or sped up the expansion made the bees adjust their flight accordingly. This strategy could be common in animals and even useful in flying robots find that paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
0: In the summer of 2009, a neuroscientist, let's call him John, had just begun a new job at a major US university. He was writing lots of order forms, buying equipment for his new lab. But it seemed harder than expected. His hand kept cramping up. At first, he thought it might be the effect of working too hard, signing too many forms. But then he noticed he was holding his arms stiff when he walked. The symptoms were too dramatic to ignore. He went to the doctor, and in the summer of 2011, at age 38, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's develops when nerve cells in the brain die. As a result, the patient doesn't have enough of a chemical called dopamine, which helps control movement. This is why John found it difficult to write and walk with his arm by his side. So how does a disorder like this affect the patient's experience in the workplace? And what's it like for a neuroscientist to discover a condition affects his own brain? Thea Cunningham spoke to John, to be clear we're not using his real name here, and began by asking him about his initial response to his diagnosis.
3: My first thought was how long can I keep this secret and how tightly do I need to clamp down? on information. I was initially very, very afraid to have anyone find out because I felt my career was so fragile at that point as a young faculty member that uh, I didn't want anyone to know. And it's not that I specifically feared any sinister activities or or motives of people. I just was really afraid, and I think um, somewhat irrationally so.
6: To what extent did you have to hide the physical symptoms of the disease when you were at work or, or in work environments?
3: Generally speaking, my observation is that things that I'm very, very keenly aware of, mo- most people around me are, are totally oblivious to. Um, so one thing I do for uh, frequently is, is sit on my hands. And uh, I do that because so, I don't know what else to do with them, because they might shake or... Uh, or move funny Um, and people have told me that yeah I sort of noticed that but I didn't really think anything about it so I think people if they don't aren't attuned to know what to look for it's actually not that hard to hide it but I was very very conscious of it Uh, it was more mentally taxing than physically taxing
6: and you told your colleagues earlier this year what was their response
3: their response was overwhelmingly positive positive. There was a lot of uh, sympathy, but um, everybody was very, very supportive, and I feared that I might be viewed as, as weak or, or incapable, and um, that, was, that was not the case at all. So it ended up being a really good decision, and it, um, it made it a lot easier because being able to be myself and be open made my life actually much, much easier in a lot of ways.
6: And has having a brain disorder given you any extra insights into the disorders that you do study?
3: Yeah, I would say that it does. For me, I have a little sort of window onto what it's like to be trapped inside a, a body or a mind that's sort of gone rogue um, in a very small way where I am able to sort of watch and think about my body uh, disobeying my will, like when I want to lift my hand, and and it doesn't. That just makes me think uh, more deeply about what the subjective experience might be like uh, for someone whose actual cognition or perception or ability to communicate with the world is foggy or impaired, and what a sort of terrifying experience that, that might be.
6: And speaking of perspective, has, it, has your diagnosis given you a different perspective on science and research in general?
3: No, it's actually intensified my, uh, my feelings about basic research. I sometimes get asked whether I have become more impatient for cures or more impatient for approaches that don't directly attack disease questions uh, in an immediate way. And actually, I have an understanding that all of those cures and breakthroughs in our understanding of uh, diseases like Parkinson's uh, stands on the shoulders of decades of basic discovery research about the brain, and that those cures don't come in a vacuum, but they come in the context of a of a scientific community and a and a society that's dedicated effort to understanding basic processes of biology and of neuroscience. And only in that context. Do those uh, sort of breakthrough moments uh, make sense?
6: What message would you give to other scientists who may be going through something similar?
3: What I'd like people to see is that, and this is the, ultimately the, the biggest reason I stopped hiding, I want to be a sort of living example that you can be successful and be imperfect or disabled in some way. I want people to not have the fear that I had and be unafraid to be themselves. And, and uh, I'd like people who have Parkinson's to see that, you know, he did it, so maybe I can.
0: News time now and joining me in the studio, two for the price of one, Chief News Editor David Ray and reporter Ewan Calloway. Earlier on, I promised you X-ray telescopes and a pickled elephant. David, let's start with the X-ray telescope story. This is by reporter Lizzie Gibney, and it's on Europe's space priorities.
7: Exactly that. It's basically chosen its themes for the missions it wants to launch in 2028 and 2034. And those two themes that were decided just the other day are on the hot and energetic universe and uh, gravitational waves, essentially. So, once it's chosen, these themes, these have to be stamped off, and a uh, lot stamped by the powers that be at the ESA, but essentially the implications are that these themes are directly linked to projects which are being planned in the pipeline, and in the first case, The 2028 mission, the Athena Plus mission, is the likely candidate to go up in 2028. And this is an X-ray telescope which is going to look out over the universe and is essentially going to study how hot gas evolves into galaxy clusters and how black holes grow. So the Athena team uh, are very pleased about this. Uh, The 2034 mission obviously is slightly further in advance and this is a a mission called ELISA, which is the Evolved Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, which sounds incredibly complicated, but essentially what it's going to do is detect low-frequency gravitational waves, and these are the things which help to stretch the fabric of space-time.
0: It surprises me somehow that the themes are kind of retroactively fitted to bits of kit that have already started to be built.
7: It's a, it's an odd way of doing things, but I think that so they need to plan so far in advance it's the only way about going things. I mean, the, the, the bids have sort of come in. Obviously, the projects haven't been chosen. In, Athena and Elisa specifically haven't been chosen yet, but everyone kind of knows that they will be because they fit best with the themes that the ESA has selected. So, it, yeah, it's, it's a bit about face, but um, it's the way things, I think, that far in advance need to be planned.
0: Is this a fairly uncontroversial win for Athena and Eliza within the space community, or have other competing projects lost out and people are annoyed?
7: A number of, uh, in particular, some planetary missions were completely overlooked, but then the the earlier mission-themed uh, mission that's been planned by ESA is to look at Jupiter. So whilst the interplanetary scientists recognise that's been chosen, I think they would have liked to have seen another planetary mission uh, sort of further down.
0: Well, there's always the 2040s for other European space scientists. And in fact, we're going back now a few hundred years to the 1750s. Ewan Calloway, you've been looking into a story about a pickled elephant.
8: Yeah, I've been following this story for quite a while. It's got a substantial backstory, but, but I'll try and summarize it quickly. Carl Linnaeus, the godfather of modern taxonomy, sometime in about 1750, 1753, described the elephant species. And when he was doing that, he kind of listed a number of references, including this pickled elephant that he had gotten his hands on. as a pickled elephant fetus, actually. Carl Linnaeus recognized only one elephant species, so he said, this is it. Um, later, scientists described several other, uh, two, at least two other elephant species, a, uh, Asian elephants and two kinds of African elephants. Problem is, is that the name that Linnaeus gave to his pickled pachyderm, Elephus maximus, um, it's designated the Asian elephant. And there have been kind of suspicions for the last 100 uh, 200 years, really, whether this thing is really an Asian elephant. People think it looks more like an African elephant based on its ears. Um, but it's an elephant fetus, so it's really difficult to determine whether it's Asian or African. And, you know, in the last decade or so, people have tried solving this mystery with DNA. That failed. And so that brings up to the latest chapter in the story where I profiled some researchers who uh, sequenced the proteins from this pickled pachyderm and determined that, yes, indeed, it was an African elephant.
0: And this matters, of course, because type specimens, they stand as the representatives for that species in nature forevermore.
8: I use the term archetype a lot. When Linnaeus was coming up with his classification system, it was very much based on type specimens or type series, saying if, you know, I'm going to define Elephas maximus, this is what it is. So if you want to describe another species of elephant, you have to go back to the type series, the type specimen, and say, why well, yours is different. Uh, it's a fundamental concept in modern biology. It has implications in conservation, paleontology, uh, you know, pretty much any field that involves recognizing plants or animals.
0: Now, modern proteomics, as you hinted at earlier, has been brought in to solve this now 300-odd-year-old
8: mystery. The the modern chapter begins with this scientist named Tom Gilbert at the University of Copenhagen, whose work I followed. And he received uh, a sample in the mail asking him to sequence it. It turned out it was a a sample from this elephant's DNA. Uh, The DNA was too degraded and... You know, they, they couldn't come to a conclusive answer. Meanwhile, Tom and a postdoc of his named Enrico Capellini have been working on these techniques to to sequence ancient proteins, and not just one protein, but dozens, even hundreds of proteins that have been degraded over time.
0: The principle being, of course, that in the same way as DNA differs between species, so do proteins, and in this case the Asian and the African elephant, have different enough proteins that we can tell that this pickled fetus that Linnaeus used is actually African.
8: Initially, they identified one amino acid in one protein, a bit of hemoglobin, that sets all Asian elephants apart from all African elephants. And this thing was undoubtedly African.
0: Which, of course, left them in the position of having to find a new representative for the Asian elephant, a new type specimen.
8: Right. Taxonomists don't like having disorder. Uh, It's an anathema to them. So uh, these scientists, Tom Gilbert and Enrico Cappellini, needed to find a new type specimen for the Asian elephant. And that's where uh, the next chapter begins.
0: The ending of the next chapter can be found in the audio documentary the Nature Podcast team, together with you, has produced. And I'll direct listeners to the website at the end of this segment for that. Is proteomics going to help scientists tidy up more of uh, taxonomy's closet?
8: Oh, for sure. I mean, I know, I know for a fact that, that Tom Gilbert and Capellini are working on some some cryptic specimens right now that are kind of lurking in museums at, in various places. But this technology isn't, isn't just useful for, for tidying up natural history museum collections. Um, there are a lot of specimens that don't yield DNA, particularly things in kind of warmer climates, um, You know, I'm thinking human fossils in equatorial regions. And what would be really cool would be if we could get ancient protein out of the hobbit Homo floresiensis and figure out what the hell this thing really is because morphology hasn't really answered it completely. DNA has failed as far as I know. And I think if somebody can get ancient proteins out of that guy, that's going to be a big story. And I think a lot of people might give this technique a try.
0: Thanks, Ewan, and thanks also to David. Read those stories and much more at nature.com news and look out on your podcast feed for a longer audio version of the elephant story. That's it for this week. Next week, I'll be reporting from the Society for Neuroscience meeting in San Diego. Till then, I'm Kerry Smith.